Well, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 32. And in a moment, I'll read verses 1 through 21. Remember, as we come to chapter 32, that Laban has, has just exited the narrative at the end of chapter 31, and now Esau is about to re-enter the narrative. Do you remember Esau 20 years earlier? Jacob had stolen Esau's blessing by deceiving their father, and Esau was angry, uh, very angry, and intended to kill his brother Jacob, and so Jacob fled 500 miles to the north uh, to his uncle Laban, became his father-in-law Laban, and he's lived the past 20 years in Haran, and very recently the Lord came to Jacob and told him that it was time for him to return home to return to the land of Canaan. And as it happens, Jacob returning to the land of Canaan put him on a collision course with that enraged brother Esau. What is going to happen? By the way, if you're just joining us this morning, uh, we're not dropping in on Genesis chapter 32 at random, but we're, we're, we're going through the entire book of Genesis and have been doing so since early 2022, and now we find ourselves in chapter 32. Let me read verses 1 through 21. Holy Scripture says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 
40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we stand in continual need of your words, that by your words you would steady and instruct and sanctify and direct our hearts. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit among us would impress the truth of your word upon our hearts, that we might follow you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you stand on God's promises when you are greatly afraid and distressed? The psalmist says in Psalms 56 verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. The big picture storyline of this passage in Genesis chapter 32 is clear enough to understand Jacob's return to Canaan in obedience to God's instruction, instruction puts him on a collision course with Esau, the brother that he had angered 20 years earlier. And the question is, what is going to happen when they collide? Looking up to heaven, Jacob has the promise that God is with him and for him. And yet, looking ahead to the land of Seir, the country of Edom, Jacob fears that Esau might attack him. How is it all going to shake out? Although our everyday lives are typically less dramatic than the circumstances that are unfolding in Genesis chapter 32, nevertheless, we, as believers, we live in the same tension. If, if we are believers, then we look upward to heaven and we remember that God has promised good to us. And yet, at the same time, we look out at our earthly troubles and we fear that those troubles might ruin us. People troubles, economic troubles, health troubles, troubles from past failures, troubles from future unknowns. Will these earthly troubles cloud our spiritual vision and weigh us down? Or will God's promises shine forth as a light on our path? and enable us to see that our trials are actually God-appointed pathways on our earthly pilgrimage. There is a rhythm in Genesis chapters 32 and 33 that helps us to see the reality of walking with God in the midst of our earthly trials. 
As Genesis chapter 32 begins, God's angels meet Jacob in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 to 8, Jacob jockeys for safety as he anticipates a possibly dangerous attack from Esau. And then in verses 9 through 12, Jacob stands on the promises of God. And then in verses 13 to 21, Jacob continues to maneuver for safety as he fearfully anticipates a dangerous collision with his brother. And then at the end of chapter 32, which we're not getting to this week, Jacob wrestles with God. And then at the beginning of chapter 33, Jacob finally meets Esau. Do you see the rhythm? God's angels, fear of Esau. God's promises, fear of Esau. Encounter with God, encounter with Esau. That's life, walking with God in the midst of our earthly trials. Let's take a closer look at Jacob's fear of Esau, which we see in verses 3 to 8 and verses 13 to 21. Jacob initially expresses a measure of caution in verses 3 to, three to 5, where he sends a delegation ahead of him to Esau. And Jacob instructs his delegation to report his very words to Esau. Thus, Says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob didn't have favor in Esau's sight 20 years earlier for obvious reasons, but he hopes that this relational overture and the report of his wealth uh, makes him favorable in Esau's sight. It is striking that Jacob refers to Esau as my Lord Esau, and that Jacob refers to himself as your servant Jacob. If you go back to Genesis chapter 27, we learned that Jacob was destined to be Lord over his brothers, including Esau, and that Esau was destined to serve his brother Jacob. That's in Genesis 27, verses 29 and 40. But Jacob flips it here. Now, while Jacob may be compelled to speak this way because he fears Esau, it is worth pointing out that when a man walks with God, God takes pride out of the man. Jacob had learned humility these past 20 years, as becomes evident in his prayer. Jacob, uh, Jacob got firsthand experience that those who are enrolled in God's school for the formation of great men must first go through years of wilderness training where their character gets hammered out in obscurity, suffering, and trials. Only humble servants are qualified for greatness. Jacob's delegation reports back that Esau is coming to meet Jacob and that Esau is coming with 400 men. And this puts fear into Jacob's heart. As we see in verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Jacob has no confidence that Esau is coming to him in peace, but rather fears that Esau is coming to him in hostility. And so in light of this fear, Jacob makes a practical maneuver. 
He divides his people and livestock into two camps in hopes of cutting his potential losses in half. If they attack the one camp, then the other camp may escape. Although there is nothing inherently wrong with responding practically to perceived dangers, there's nothing inherently wrong with acting tactically to preserve life and to minimize your losses, such practical tactics are not nearly as important as the more fundamental issue of calling on the name of the Lord and trusting him, as Jacob does in verses 9 to 12, and we'll get to that in a moment. But since we're discussing Jacob's practical tactics at the moment, I want you to see what he does in verses 13 to 21. The the basic action that he takes here is to prepare a present for Esau. From what he had with him, verse 13, he took a present for his brother Esau. This is not a small present, but a large gift of 580 animals, assuming that each milking that each milking camel had her own calf. And this large gift testifies not only to the gravity of this moment, but it also testifies to the great wealth that Jacob had accumulated during his last six years in Haran, that he would even have such resources to give such a gift. Now, in preparation to give this gift to Esau, Jacob handed over the animals to his servants, every drove by itself, thereby creating a line of animals, a procession of gifts, with each group of animals under the care of a servant. And Jacob instructed these servants what to tell Esau as each servant encountered Esau. They were to say, these animals belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. Jacob's servants and his gifts will precede him into the presence of his brother Esau. And Jacob's intention for this large gift was obviously to pacify his brother, for he thought, verse 20, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Jacob is attempting to win Esau's favor by giving him a large gift. And while gift giving should never be done to pervert justice, it is legitimate to give gifts in order to make peace, to appease one who is angry, to show goodwill to a brother who has been offended, and to win favor in the sight of someone who is apt to be unfavorable toward us. When done righteously, giving a large gift to someone that you have offended may be understood as an act of restitution or as an act of sacrifice that costs you something of value because you place even more value on making peace with the person that you have offended. So having prepared the present for Esau, the present passed on ahead of him, and Jacob himself stayed that night in the camp. Now, that's the, that's the, that's the, the context of, of, of Jacob's earthly circumstances and the, the fear and distress that he is facing. Now, I want to back up and return to the beginning of Genesis chapter 32. When Jacob went on his way after departing from Laban, after the events of chapter 31, the angels of God met him, verse 1. Before Jacob 
sent his messengers to Esau, God sent his messengers to Jacob. If you've ever heard the phrase, God goes before us, that idea is right here in verses 1 and 2. God's attentiveness and care are made known to Jacob through his angels who meet Jacob on the way. Now, it's very interesting, 20 years earlier, when Jacob was about to depart from Canaan, the Lord revealed himself to Jacob at Bethel, and angels were part of that revelation. It says in Genesis 28, 12, and Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Thus, within the context of the revelatory dream that the Lord had given to Jacob 20 years earlier when he was leaving Canaan, Jacob saw the angels of God. Now, as Jacob is returning to Canaan, he once again sees the angels of God, and Jacob is able to put two and two together. If God's angels are here, then the Lord himself must be near. That's how the dream went in chapter 28. First Jacob saw the ladder, and then he saw the angels, and then he saw the Lord. After the dream of chapter 28 concluded and Jacob got his bearings, he named the place Bethel, meaning house of God. Well, here in Genesis 32, the angels appear to Jacob in verse 1. And the the Lord's not far off. The Lord's going to appear to Jacob in verse 24. But even before the Lord appears to Jacob, Jacob recognizes that the presence of God's angels bear witness to the presence of God. So Jacob calls the place Camp of God. Right? Verse 2. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, the English translation obscures the fact that the words camp and Mahanaim are very closely related. The word translated camp is Makane, and the word, the word translated Mahanaim is Makanaim. And so here, here's what it, to get the idea, okay, follow along here. When Jacob saw the angels of God, he said, this is God's Makanaim. So he called the name of that place Machanaim, which means two camps. Or to put it in terms of camps, after recognizing that this is God's camp, he named the place two camps, which is what Machanaim means. Now, the two camps of verse 2 should not be confused with the two camps of verse 7. Jacob divided his own camp into two camps in verse 7, in order to minimize losses against a possible attack from Esau. But something else is in view in verse 2. Although the text doesn't tell us plainly, I strongly suspect, suspect that the meaning of the phrase two camps is clear enough. Jacob obviously has his own encampment in the place. His own family, his own servants, his own possessions, and his own tents. But in verses 1 and 2, Jacob realizes that there is another encampment in his midst, namely the camp of God, the encampment of Elohim. These two camps are indeed two camps that can be differentiated from one another, and yet in this particular place, these two camps converged. 
Where, where is Jacob's camp? In Mahanaim. Where is God's camp? In Mahanaim. Jacob's earthly camp of human beings, livestock, physical tools, and earthly dwellings is in that place. But God's heavenly camp of holy angels and divine resources are also in that place. You know, God's heavenly camp is often hidden from our sight, but it is never far away. For God's heavenly camp moves upon the earth to do God's bidding. For example, Psalm 34, verse 6, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And Psalm 91, verses 9 to 13, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And of course, Hebrews 1.14. Are the angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? None of this, by the way, should cause us to be obsessed with angels. People who are obsessed with angels or who seek to initiate encounters and conversations with angels or who are always giving credit for the, uh, for, to the protection of guardian angels, such people have drifted far from what the Bible teaches. On the other hand, people who regard angels as irrelevant or unimportant are also out of step with biblical teaching. The holy angels are the messengers and ministers of God Almighty, and he has appointed them to do things upon the earth for our benefit and they do for our benefit whatever the Lord tells them to do. And we must never worship them or pray to them, but we must have regard for their God-assigned role. And take this to heart. Either you are going through life with God and his encampment for you, or you are going through life with God and his encampment against you. Make sure that your camp, so to speak, is supported by God's camp. Make sure that God's favor is upon you. Make sure that the Lord is with you and fights for you, that the Lord goes before you and serves as your rear guard. Otherwise, you truly are in grave danger. Now, I'm going to jump to Jacob's prayer in verses 9 to 12, if we were perfected in faith, the knowledge that God's camp is with us and for us should be more than enough to allay any fears that we might have. But we have to be honest about the fact that we are often weak in faith, and our confidence in God's protection is not as strong as it ought to be. In other words, we are very much like Jacob. Jacob knew that God's encampment was in his very midst. And yet, verse 7, he was greatly afraid 
and distressed at the prospect of an attack from Esau. And we often live within that same tension. We know that the Lord is for us, and yet we fall into many and diverse fears. We shouldn't, but we do. Is anyone here greatly afraid or distressed this morning? Don't lose heart or be tempted to give up because you're greatly afraid or distressed this morning. Rather, eagerly learn from your brother Jacob's example because what Jacob does in verses 9 to 12 is a great example for us. When we face many and diverse fears, we must stand on the promises of God. We must stand in the faithfulness of God. We must fight the good fight of the faith by clinging to God's promises in the midst of the battle. Jacob begins his prayer by remembering that the Lord is the God who had made covenant with his ancestors. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, there in verse 9. Jacob stands in the stream of God's covenant faithfulness. Jacob then recalls God's instruction and promise. O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Jacob is on the road back to Canaan because that's what the Lord told him to do. Jacob is not facing danger because he's disobeying the Lord. He's facing danger on the path of obedience to the Lord. And that's often the case. Jacob remembers that God's command was designed to bless him, that I may do you good. And you need to remember that when the path of obedience is beset by many trials, that God's commands are for your good always. Next, Jacob remembers that he has been the undeserving recipient of abundant grace. There in verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Twenty years earlier, when Jacob had left Canaan and moved to Haran. He did so as a single man with hardly any possessions except the clothes upon his back and the staff in his hand. But now he had greatly increased to the point that he was able to divide, he was able to divide his men and his possessions into two companies. The Lord had been with him and cared for him these past 20 years. The Lord had provided for him in terms of both family and possessions. The Lord had preserved him through the Laban years and recently delivered from the hand of Laban. If Jacob felt self-righteous or entitled to God's care 20 years earlier, that self-righteousness was wonderfully gone. That sense of entitlement was completely gone. Jacob now saw himself as a humble servant of the Lord who didn't deserve any of the loving care that he had received from the Lord. Listen, you will not make any progress in your walk with God unless you stop being full of yourself. It is critically important. 
Jacob knew that he was not worthy of the least of God's favors, and neither am I, and neither are you. Which is why gratitude is such a prominent Christian virtue and instruction throughout the entire Bible. Thus, standing in humility in the generous stream of God's covenant faithfulness, Jacob offers his petition to the Lord in verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. If you are afraid, tell the Lord. If you are afraid for yourself, tell the Lord. If you are afraid for your loved ones, tell the Lord. Name the fear. Be specific. Ask the Lord to specifically deliver you from that person or thing that you fear. If you are anxious, do not make make peace with your anxiety, but rather learn instead to not be anxious about anything. But in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, 6. When Jacob offers his petition, it is not some pie-in-the-sky request. Instead, Jacob's petition is anchored in God's promise to him. Because he follows his petition with this claim of God's promise, right? But you said, verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You have to battle against the fears that threaten you with faith in God's promise to do you good, protect you, and prosper you. Jacob was met by God's angels in verses 1 and 2. So Jacob knows that God's camp has descended upon his camp. God is not far off, but hears and answers the prayers of his people. Jacob prays to God and stands in God's promises in verses 9 to 12. God is not far off, but is about to draw Jacob into a wrestling match that will prove momentous in his life as verses 22 to 32 await. But for now, I want to leave you with a poem to help verse 10 to sink in. In verse 10, of course, Jacob says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love. And and like Jacob, we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies that the Lord has so graciously given to us. And so many years ago, I came across this poem by Beatrice Bixler, and I want to share it with you now in closing this message. I am not worthy the least of his favor, but Jesus left heaven for me. The word became flesh, and he died as my Savior, forsaken on dark Calvary. I am not worthy the least of his favor, but in the beloved I stand. Now I'm an heir with my wonderful Savior, and all things are mine at his hand. I am not worthy the least of his favor, but he is preparing a place where I shall dwell with my glorified Savior forever to look on his face. 
I am not worthy. This dull tongue repeats it. I am not worthy. This heart gladly beats it. Jesus left heaven to die in my place. What mercy, what love, and what grace. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are not worthy of the least of your mercies, but thank you for giving them so abundantly to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we also confess that we are often beset by some fear or distress. Father, we pray that you would help us in the midst of those very fears and distresses to cling to your promises, not to, not to meditate on the fear, but to meditate on the promises, to remember your past faithfulness, and to wait patiently upon you to deliver us at the appointed time. Father, I pray that you would nurture and grow stable and fruitful faith in and through our congregation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.